Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein. And we like to do that in the world of sports, of business, of leadership, of comedy, of music. The list goes on and on. And I feel like Rich could probably speak to a lot of these things. Rich, a lot of us we're talking to today, and he's known in his day job as a pastor. He's been dipping more into the uh, author world. And I happened to talk before we got on here a little bit, double confirming that he is a Mets fan. And he could have gone for about a half hour talking about that. So maybe sports. Do we have any comedy we could put out there, Rich, for you to add that to the mix? Uh, Absolutely. My wife said that if I wasn't a preacher, I probably would have tried to do some work as a stand-up comic. So I'm not sure if I would have been really good, but I think I would have been okay. All right. So now did you, do you embrace that? Does that mean there's a coming 15 minute stand-up routine you're working on for something? Every sermon to some degree <laughs> has some uh, humor in it that I'm very intentional about. Okay. Uh, so uh, give me some time and I, I can put together a pretty good routine. Okay. Well, I got a lot of content I want to talk to you about today. And as I told you, we'll never get through all this. We'll go as always where Holy Spirit goes, but you came up on the scene to me and I'm nobody, but you came onto the scene with me a couple years ago out of nowhere between social media and I think even in my world, this book, The Deeply Formed Life, started popping up. I saw a couple friends separately talk about it, and people were giving comments and saying, I like that book, and it's had this kind of impact on my life, and spiritual disciplines and healthy rhythms and yada, yada, yada. And then through that, somehow I found out that you were the guy that replaced Pete Scazzaro, who's wildly known for emotional, healthy leader, emotional, healthy church, emotionally healthy uh, granola bars, emotionally healthy sitcom, whatever. He's got a bunch of emotionally healthy yeah. podcasts, you name it. And then I got really intrigued by your book that came out not too long ago called Good, Beautiful, and Kind. And it just feels like you're everywhere. And at the time that we're taping, um, I won't give too much away about that because we try to stay timely, but yesterday... I go to my Version Bible app. I started doing the a verse a day thing a few weeks ago, feeling like the Lord said, start paying attention to this. And yesterday, you're the guy doing a video devotional. So I watched it and thought, <laughs> well, this is appropriate. I'm talking to him tomorrow. Does that feel fair? Like, I didn't have to make that a status thing, but does it feel like your life has been kind of explosive over the last couple of years? Without question. I think uh, I not, I don't think anything has changed in terms of my responsibilities as a pastor, what I've been doing, what I've been preaching, what I've been reflecting on. It's just that I think, and this is just the nature of publishing. If a book does well, it's going to add complexity. It's going to add a level of um, awareness that was previously, you know, not had. And so, you know, on, on social media, it's, it. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, the growth has been outrageous. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it is safe to say that in the last couple of years, there's been 
a quite a surge of I think awareness of the work that I'm doing and uh, which brings uh, lots of wonderful opportunities and uh, lots of challenges of course. So I've seen people in the writing world talk about like the day before their book comes out the family goes and gets ice cream or you know Andy Downs I've heard her talk a lot about things related to the day a book comes out or right before what you feel like so that was your first book and most people don't have a first book that just does as well as a deeply formed life did when it comes out leading up to it what are you thinking like what do you feel like your heart was pretty pure do you feel like you're like nah i want to be a new york times bestseller i want to whatever what was going through your heart getting ready for that and then when it released and did what it did i think a couple of things i think with with everything in my life there's lots of mixture uh, I think, and, you know, when some C.S. Lewis said that uh, one of his books that, you know, whatever we give ourselves to, there's always going to be some mixture, no matter how virtuous the deed or thought mm-hmm. is also often something about myself that I'm is still wrapped up in this. And so I remember the night before my book came out, I was journaling and my prayers and part of it was anxiety. Part of it was how is this going to be received? And I, I said a prayer that I wrote down and I can probably pick it up in one of my journals today pretty easily, where I just asked the Lord, Lord, do whatever you want to do with this book. And that was my, that was my prayer. And I, I meant it from the bottom of my heart as I was writing it down. And, and then when I closed my journal, I thought, but Lord, I hope it does really well, you know, and, mm-hmm. so do whatever you want, but I hope it does really well. And, you know, it was strange because I had a sense that uh, it was going to reach some people. I was not expecting it to win like a Christianity Today award. I was not expecting it to really sell pretty well early on. So I I didn't get the ice cream part of it. It was a very strange release as well because it was right in the pandemic, 2020. And so it was very strange. There was no launch party. There was no friends I had with me to celebrate the release of it. But I did pray that God would do whatever God wanted to do with it. And um, I, I've been delighted to see the ways that it's helping people over the last couple of years. See, it's interesting. I wish people could see you on the screen like I do right now. What I've noticed about you is you just seem to really get into the moment. You seem to really, I mean, you obviously got a book called The Good, Beautiful, and Kind, but you really seem to go with where you are, treating very seriously what you're doing in the moment is as if there's nothing else you're doing, but that in a moment. And I really think that's a great way we should live our lives. I heard years ago, you know, I'm, I'm in full-time ministry serving professional guys. And I heard someone say, do what you're doing as if it's the only thing you'll ever do and hold on to it. Like it's gone tomorrow. And I really like that line. And you seem to do that with moments. How intentional is that? How much is that just, you don't even try to, and it just naturally happens, but you seem to be a man of the moment. You know, I think, one of the prayers that I pray on a regular basis that I fail at often, and yet it's something that wow. it stays before me, is about presence, being present. And you know, whenever I have a time with God in silence and meditation and scripture, I usually end every prayer session with one specific word of prayer. And it is, Lord, may I be present to you, mm. present to myself, and present to my neighbor. And I I end every time with that because I do want to live in this present moment that we're in. I don't want to live with my mind thinking about what's going to come or what's happened. And it is that kind of sacrament of the present moment that is very difficult. And I failed at it so much, yet I feel like I'm often haunted in a good way by the necessity to be present. 
so yeah, I mean, it's, it is something I've struggled to live, but something I know that God is inviting me to every single day. I'm still, I just wrote that down, that God would allow me to be present with him, with myself, and in the moment, and, and a neighbor, because I think what's key in that to me, what really spoke to me when you said that, Rich, was being aware of myself and present with me and being sensitive. I, I feel like the Lord's been dealing with me lately on some ways that being with other people, I'm typically pretty good, but I need to be a little bit more sensitive to not coming on too strong, being more whatever. And mm. uh, I, I really like that middle part of, of what you're praying there. So, man, kudos. I, I feel like by the time this thing's over, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be much further down the road of discipleship because of this conversation. So forget whoever hears this. You, you got on here because of me. So, um, well, Rich, let's backtrack. Give us your testimony. Give us the three minutes. Rich Valitas, say it again. Yeah, Valotis. Valotis. It's a lot easier yeah. than I'm making it. Give yeah, us the yeah. Rich Valotis story. Yeah, you know, I didn't grow up in a whole Christian home. I grew up in a home that was quite indifferent to it. But my parents would send me with my grandparents who lived down the block from me to a small church, uh, Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, after going there from about five years old to about 12, I asked my parents if I could stop going to church. They said, yes, you don't have to go anymore. And felt like I was saved at that moment from the church. And then found myself back in the church as a 17-year-old because I started dating a pastor's daughter. And the pastor said, the only way you can date my daughter is if you come to church. And I was like, I'm there. And so I started attending this church as a 17-year-old in Queens and hearing about the stories of Jesus. And the way that the pastor got me there was there was a basketball court in the basement of the mm. church. And so I love playing basketball. So I play basketball on Wednesday nights there. And then I'd be so tired after playing that he would give a 30-minute Bible study. And so I did that for a number of uh, a couple of years. And then the relationship came to an end and I walked from Queens to Brooklyn, uh, depressed and got home and saw my mother and father at home with my four younger siblings. They were at this church that we never went to. Someone invited us. And so I decided to walk into that same church that I used to go with, with my grandparent. They were having a revival and some preacher got up, preached from Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones and mm. said, some of you, you're lifeless, you're dry, you're desolate, you're fractured, you're fragmented. God wants to breathe life into you. And he said, who wants the breath of God? Wow. And I responded. And not only did I respond that night, about 14 other family members responded that night as well. And my parents, my uh, brother, my sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, and a small church in Brooklyn. And that was 1999, August of 1999. Wow. And uh, from that point on, I didn't know what to do. And so my grandfather started discipling me almost every day for eight months before he died. And so teaching me the scriptures, teaching me how to pray. And then from that point on, I went to a Christian college, learned theology, pastoral ministry. But it began in that one little church that I became a Christian in with 15 other family members. Wow. That's amazing. It's I mean, you hear about Billy Graham revivals and people, whatever, but that many family members at one time, that's unbelievable. And it sounds like everybody was very legit in that, correct? Yeah. And what's interesting about that summer is it just wasn't my, it was, it was pretty amazing to see. There were entire households coming to faith in Jesus in that church. And uh, that church typically had about 30 people in it. By the end of the summer, it probably tripled in size because of how many families, not just individuals, mm -hmm. families came to Christ. I mean, the baptisms that we were having that year and the year after, 
were amazing. So yeah, amazing to see what God can do, really. Has that 23 years later, and obviously you've been in your role longer than that, you were at the church, I believe, before Pete stepped away and handed off the baton, has that shaped yeah. a lot of how you view and live out ministry, seeing families come to Christ like that versus just individuals? Yeah, you know, I think one thing it gave me is a vision of what God can do, really. Uh, and uh, there is something really powerful about seeing family units uh, come. That's actually quite, we see this in the scriptures in the book of Acts, uh, that is more than just individuals coming to Christ, but in, entire family units. And so I'm not sure if it's been prescriptive for me about anything, but more than anything, it's helped me, especially when I tell my story to others, to give people hope that, you know, God can rescue entire families, not just individuals. And there's something really powerful when it happens in that way. Yeah, I can't imagine that wouldn't have a longer impact than just that moment, that year, that whatever it may be. So let's go back to the explosion thing for a minute. So when you have had what's happened the last couple of years happen, you get opportunities, you're doing the devotional for the U version yesterday. You get to be on your the podcast you've been dreaming of, the Pinkleton Pool Aside. <laughs> That's right. Pause from okay, let's take that in. You know, you you're getting on other podcasts, books, you know, you did the GMA thing, which we'll come back to in a minute. You were just in Wichita, Kansas with some other great people who are impacting the kingdom through writing and whatever. And I want to hear your process a little bit. Has your capacity to ramp up yes be yes, no be no, your discernment thing had to just ramp up big time at a super fast speed? And how have you discerned yeses and nos? You know, in some ways, it's actually been pretty easy for me because I only take on you know, 10 to 12 speaking engagements a year where I travel, get on a plane or something like that. Truth be told, I get a whole lot more than that, invitations. And so when I have a limit, and part of that was a conversation that was negotiated with our elder board about what feels like a right in light of my, the age of my children, my wife spoke into that, our board, what feels like the right amount of times that Rich can go on a speaking event and still really be faithful as a local church pastor. And so we landed around, you know, 10 to 12 or so a year. So um, the vast majority of requests I get, it's actually a very easy no. It's very like, no, I, you know, I, or, or for example, this year, once I hit 10 or 12 and other people say, hey, can you do it this year? It was very, no, I, I can't do it. Uh, and that's just because that's something I agreed to with our board and with my wife. So in that way, there's not much discernment that's required uh, around it. What I say yes to, however, you know, I, I have a particular desire to help pastors and leaders. So those are often contexts that I say yes to. Increasingly, because I have a 13-year-old daughter, I see the need to encourage and to help uh, teenagers. And so whenever those opportunities come as well, there was a season where I did not have the grace to preach to teenagers. Mm. Uh, I think that grace has returned in my life now. And so whenever there's an opportunity to do that, it's something that I do. And then much of it is based on friendship. Uh, the invitations I get are often from friends that I just love to partner in ministry with. And so those kind of three different categories help me to, as a grid, to you know decide what I want to say yes to and then ultimately what I need to say no to. Well, I'll lean in to hope by the end of this time, we've built friendship and I get to be in the yes category. <laughs> well, hey, I've gotten yes so far. I'm grateful for that. So in preparing for this, after I sent you the script notes, thoughts I had going into it this morning. So I, I lead about, we, I'm a part of about 23 small groups of men in our area region that I'm, I'm a part of 
the businessmen, professional guys who meet every couple weeks. The one group today that's a virtual group, we have Florida, Tennessee, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio people involved. And we were looking at 1 Thessalonians 2. And when we looked at verse 6, and it talks in here about, Paul's talking here, he said, nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I thought about you when I when I saw that verse and thought, mm. man, how does Rich stay humble, stay, you seem very true to your church, like nothing's getting in the way of new life. And how do you respond in context to a verse like that, keeping you grounded and saying, okay, I'm not going to get caught up in reading headlines, seeing what the New York Times says, what are my Amazon reviews saying? How do you work at that? First of all, I'd be lying if, I, if I'd say that that stuff doesn't impact me because you know, I had to come to a point where I had to get rid of the Amazon app on my phone mm. because I found myself comparing numbers of my second book to my first book and realize I'm heading down a really bad path here. And I just need to trust God with whatever God wants to do with this. And so removing an app was just really important. I actually feel having the relationships I have with my, my wife, I'm actually pretty, pretty rooted. I don't travel extensively. I have had a mentor in Pete Scazzaro that has really discipled me to be leery of anything, any kind of celebrityism and megachurch phenomenons. And not every megachurch is bad, but just kind of the, the lust for just more and more and more. And so having a strong, incredibly strong wife is, is helped to ground me. Having a board that I meet with monthly that knows my life, that asks me hard questions, that is really caring about my soul, has been a gift. I, I know my first call is to New Life Fellowship Church, the people here. And so these are the people that I want to mentor and disciple and 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 help to equip and preach. So and but and then at the same time I recognize, you know, whenever I find myself feeling entitled and I'm already on a, you know, I'm 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 going down a bad road this entitlement feeling. And I think that's a temptation from time to time. You know, when your book does well and people are seeing you in a particular way, it's very, it's the temptation is very easy to start, you know, reading my own news clippings. I, I gave a talk for Q one day on celebrity, Christian celebrity. And I mentioned that there's a difference between celebrity and celebrityism. And that, you know, Jesus, you could argue was a celebrity. If celebrity is someone who's like really well-known, Jesus would fall into that category, but Jesus resisted celebrityism, which is a way of life that's marked by kind of mm. entitlement, that's marked by special treatment, that's marked by something works for, you know, I get privileges by virtue of who I am that you don't get. And I think I've had to work hard and the new life culture, I think, works towards that end. I mean, I, I told the story in one of those talks and in an article I wrote that, you know, I don't have a parking spot here mm. in my church. And so whenever Sunday comes, I have to park sometimes a block, two blocks down the road and then walk to church. And because that though we have very limited parking spots and that's, that's for first time guests, those for elderly folks, those are for parents with young children and everything inside of me says, why don't I get a park? I should get a parking spot. But this has been like something that's protected me from again, the sense of celebrityism. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm aware of and not always to the degree that I'd like to be, but I like to think that I have a really strong community of people around me that keep me quite grounded, actually. A little too grounded, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
quite grounded. You know, as you're talking, I'm trying to be prayerful here about what I'm going to say next, but I feel like I can say this. You know, it's interesting to hear what you're saying. So I just watched this docu-series that's out uh, in Christian world. People would know it pretty quickly where you see where something's falling apart. And with this particular person, it's not far from you where this happened. And that whole celebrity celebrityism thing no. definitely took place. And no. with you, you are fighting hard against that. When we look in Christian leadership world today and see where sadly a lot of things have happened and people have fallen and things have been blown apart, do you take that? Do you look at things like that anytime and every time you see something? It's like, okay, what do I learn from this? And keep leaning in and growing and protect yourself. Because like I said, you don't have to go far. You've seen great examples in your neck of the woods. You've seen yeah. not great examples. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I realize, and again, this is part of the mentoring I've received from Pete. I'm, I'm beginning to realize more and more. I, I think I've realized this for a long time, but I'm, I'm getting greater revelations of this. I carry a lot of power. Mm. My words carry a lot of power for the people that I lead in new life. And there's something in me, the, 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 when I think about, when I see you know, uh, pastors make some really bad decisions, the first thing I think is all the people that are going to be impacted by this decision, you know, th those closest, those, I mean, another black guy on the church. And for me, I want to live a life by God's grace that brings honor to Jesus and strengthens the faith of others. And when I see pastors fall, I get terrified that I don't, I don't want to be in that space there. So it is terrifying. And, and, and again, back to mentorship, you know, when I, when I wrote my first book, I had a conversation with Pete Scazzaro in my office right here. I asked him, I said, Pete, can you give me some advice around writing? You've published, you've done really well. Give me your best advice about being a writer. And he said, well, uh, we'll meet in two weeks. And so we met in my office and he sat across from me. And instead of him giving me advice, he basically said this, Rich, your soul is in danger. And here's all the temptations that are going to befall you because you're making this decision. And I was so angry at him. I was like, man, I wanted advice. I didn't want the prophetic word from the prophet Ezekiel, you know, to come into, you know, and, and, but he gave me a great gift, those 45 minutes. And I have all the notes from what he said. And basically he was letting me know that I'm about to enter into a space where there are greater temptations, greater influence, greater power, and you have to guard your soul and guard your heart and have the right structures around you. And I think that conversation not only angered me, it terrified me as well. Mm. And, um, but I think having, I wish everyone had what I had that day, someone to look at them and say, your soul's in danger. And I'm thinking, I haven't even written anything yet. And he says, no, your soul's in danger. Be on guard because uh, it can change at a moment's notice. And so I think I've, I've held on to that because I'm actually very terrified by it. So the two anchor verses, in my opinion, of discipleship is 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then a Timothy Lois Eunice thing in 2 Timothy 2, 2. And on the upside, we've talked about a negative thing there just a minute ago about our soul getting wrecked and, and people falling. What I've read of Pete Scazzaro, and I've listened to his podcast a number of times and things like that, you can just see this healthy rhythm, like everything about him is trying to do everything he can to love all there is to love of Jesus. And yeah. I see and hear in your writing, when you've been on podcasts, GMA, whatever it may be, where he has had an impact on you. 
And I'm guessing if I spend time with people at New Life Fellowship who you've poured into, they're probably going to look somewhat like you. And I just think whatever we talk about today, discipleship is supposed to look like. There's something you guys have. Do you feel like you guys have something figured out? Not in an arrogant way, but like, yeah, here in Queens, our church, people connected us. We figured something out with discipleship. Very much so. And I I don't say, again, I don't say that with any kind of like uh, arrogance or any false humility. I think God has entrusted us with a particular message about discipleship and formation that has impacted hundreds of thousands of lives around this world. And I think our task is to be to steward that. How do we steward this convergence of discipleship that includes emotional health and contemplative spirituality, slowing down? How do we talk about loving well? How do we think about matters of race and racism and thinking about larger areas of justice in our world? God has really entrusted us over the last 25, 30 years with some really beautiful things that have emerged out of failure, that have emerged out of all kinds of uh, pain. And so because I think much of these things have been birthed out of pain and out of failure, it has resonated with a lot of people. So I, I think we have figured out a lot and there's still much to figure out, but the journey that we've been on over the last few decades has, has been very fruitful, mm. very life-giving for our team, for our church as a whole, for churches that have uh, been impacted by the work that we're doing. So yeah, I mean, I, I think we have we have worked really hard to arrive at the place where we're at right now. Sure. Talk to me about this. So I care a lot. I've been doing what I've been doing for 15 years. I transitioned from a urban youth ministry over 10 years to I was the founder, handed it off to somebody else. I'm thinking about my founder to person in men's world that I'm doing now. It looks like you guys have done a great job with that. And in church ministry world, many times over, it is a massive fail. Talk about what that process was like. Some of the things, you know, you and Pete did very, very well. What would you do over again? What are you learning that you will do when you transition that leadership baton? Talk about that for a couple minutes. You know, I don't think the process could have gone any better. It was a thorough, slow, remarkable process. And so, number one, Pete had a four-year runway where before he announced, he announced it to the board and said, in four years, I'm going to transition out. So 2009 is when he announced it. 2013 is when I became the lead pastor. So that's number one. So it was it was slow and methodical. Uh, we brought in outside consultants to really help us assess and get clear on what's Pete's role going to be, what's Rich's role over the next four years. We were clear about when the transition happens, Pete was going to remain on staff for a few more years, but in a different capacity. We were very clear about his job description. We were clear about his salary. We were clear about what I was going to step into. After we announced it to the congregation, we stayed in very good communication with our church. We had multiple town halls to help people with their own anxiety because they had them. You know, Pete's leaving. Pete's been my only pastor. And now Rich is coming. Who's Rich? You know, and he's coming on the scene. Uh, And so but beyond anything, I think the, the biggest reason why this succeeded was, number one, Pete's maturity. Pete's inner work that he did on himself to let go. It was, it's very difficult to let go, especially something that you start. And he, he, his maturity was the most important thing. And then secondly, I think because of the way he mentored me, my maturity was most important. And so my ability to remain connected to Pete emotionally mm. and relationally and yet be the leader God called me to be 
that did not come easy. And it took me a few years to actually begin to live into that. But I wouldn't be able to live into that if people didn't mentor me in the right way. And so we had the elders involved, healthy communication with our team, very clear expectations, job descriptions, outside consulting. I mean, it could not have been a better process. I'm entering my 10th year wow. this fall as the lead pastor of this community, and we're flourishing. We're doing great. And uh, it was a long, arduous process that has been well worth all the effort and the time. I'll tell you what, I know Southeast Christian down in Louisville, where Kyle Eidelman's now the senior pastor. I know some folks there and uh, have some friends who've done a variety of things, leadership, just attend whatever. I know they've done it really, really well. Yeah. Like Chick-fil-A has sent people there uh, to check out what they do, which is funny to me. Like, wait, Chick-fil-A wants to know about succession planning from them. I really hope and pray people are talking to you and Pete that way because two things you said, one was kind of subtle. The other one, like was significant to me, you talked about town hall meetings and I would bet, I mean, maybe that seems obvious, but I bet people don't do that as well or as much. And then you talked about the first tie you said was the emotional attachment staying connected to Pete emotionally, which I found very interesting because most people I would think would put something else there. So it's just exciting. I hope, I hope and pray that God allows other people to have the grace and humility to seek you guys out. Not, not that you need to be full-time Vanderbloom and, you know, consultants, <laughs> but uh, that's exciting stuff. Um, let me jump in. Let's go a little superficial here for a minute. I like to do these things called the rapid five, just quick hitting, fun little answers. Rich, what is your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Oh, uh, that, that's got to be, I, here's a problem with this, Jeff. I mean, <laughs> I, I had so much cereal growing up as a kid. Uh, Fruity Pebbles was definitely uh, top of the list there. Fruit Loops, Captain Crunch, Apple Jacks, all the unhealthy stuff. Um, I mean, I could keep going, man. Cocoa Puffs, all of that. Most people just say, you know, Rich, give me one answer. They don't give me like <laughs> 12 answers, but uh Wow. I, I can't imagine how much longer you could go. I think we might have a podcast we could do on the side about favorite and, cereals. And let me tell you, whenever I go to the grocery store, my wife, I go, honey, can I just come back with one? And she goes, uh, you're not nine anymore. No. You know? so, uh... <laughs> I've gotten bad about that too more recently as well, especially going to like Sam's or Costco and I'll have the big like, you know, double box of, uh, of Cinnamon Toast Crunch or something. So right. what is your favorite non-rich book you most like to gift to other i guess you can't say pete scazzaro either what's your favorite book you most like to gift to other people uh it is probably return of the prodigal son by mm. henry now now that one hit me when i was uh in my lower 20s and i've come back to it ever yeah. since i'm reading way of the heart right now actually uh Beautiful. got that two weeks ago in portland when i was at a conference where your name was mentioned practicing the way very nice. Very so, nice. Um, so here's a big family one. So you you guys are heading on vacation somewhere. You're getting out of New York. You go south. You go west. You go wherever you go. You're about five hours in. You were planning on a stop. You have to stop about 15 minutes too early because you, your wife, your daughter, whoever's got to go to the bathroom. And you're like, we're not stopping twice this close together. You see the exit sign. Pretend all three are on the sign. And it says McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, and an out Burger. Where does Team V go there? Chick-fil-A, 100%. Wow. And you've traveled out west, so you've probably had an in-out burger. Well, I'm, I'm not sure who, where your listeners are at, <laughs> but um, I, I have, I've had in-and-out three times in my life, and every time I was underwhelmed by it. Wow. Underwhelmed. Have you had Whataburger? I know some people like to throw Whataburger 
in that mix with uh no the- i never had whataburger but i i totally underwhelmed like it was good but okay i i wasn't texting my friends about it wow do you text your friends about chick-fil-a i text my friends about shake shack Ooh, uh, my son's uh, best friend girl for years likes that my son's always said that place is a little overrated i get it i know i listen we're gonna we're gonna have differing <laughs> opinions about this uh and it's okay for people to be wrong uh, <laughs> but shake shack is uh much better than well that. nobody's gonna argue with you about cereal because you like every cereal <laughs> there's nothing exactly. that's not good for you as far as cereal is concerned so rich let's go let's go old school here there's no streaming you're flipping channels you and your wife or you solo and you come across a movie and you're like we're not changing anymore this is the movie what is your movie you get pulled into every time uh godfather uh easy lord of the rings okay. easy um yeah i, I see th- th- those two that immediately come to mind you know what's humbling i've never seen any godfather i've never seen any lord of the rings well there's always i mean let's make the time for it let's make the time for it well godfather uh, i definitely would jump into i'm a sci-fi type stuff and i, I like narnia all that I, I know i should probably get into it i just have not yeah lord of the rings is a hundred times better than narnia but uh narnia is okay i like it but lord of the rings is way better but godfather i mean you you owe it to yourself yeah i do feel like i owe that that, that one i do all right so here you go um i'm curious I, I think i might know where you would go here what is your favorite trendy clothing item that you have most bought into trending clothing yeah trendy clothing item that's kind of hip cool what have you bought into i know what you're going to say but uh it has been uh probably uh sneakers and that's because my brother's is, uh, you know he's a sneaker head he has all he has i i don't know what 20 30 pairs of sneakers and specifically these the the jordan ones i knew it have been the, uh, the last three years i probably have enough, i'm up to like four pairs now and um that's never been the case before the last couple of years so it's all downhill from here so has our twitter got preacher sneaker guy has he ever got you on twitter no i think because i i buy them at you know they're 175 dollars whatever they are then they're not the these limited edition ones that cost three thousand yeah. dollars so, um so I don't think I'll be in any trouble anytime soon. You know what's funny about that? So when we were out in Portland recently. We commented there were like 600 people at this conference. It wasn't quite the hipster thing like I thought. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. Oh, my goodness. The shoes, everybody was wearing. I mean, Jordans were big. I, you know, me and my two, two buddies and my oldest son, the three older guys, we had the Hey Dudes on. We like to rock <laughs> some Hey Dudes. But the Jordans were uh, – they were happening. You could have felt like you were at a Jordan convention out there. <laughs> Very nice. I like, and I think it, I think the Jordan store is out there somewhere in the Pacific. Well, Northwest. yeah. So I, I didn't know this. When we were out there, my youngest son's a huge basketball fan. He loves his shoes. We were nine miles from uh, Bridgetown Church from the Nike headquarters. I guess you can't get anywhere close. Like they don't, wow. there's no outlet store there. There's no nothing. The women at Bridgetown said, don't even try. Like you ain't going to see nothing. Like, well, I get it. That's good to know. I guess we'll spend all our time at, uh, Powell's bookstore. So let's, let's move on to a couple other things. I want to jump ahead and we'll come back to your book. The GMA thing for me blew me away. I don't know what it was. And this is not like a fan guy thing with you. I just, I was really impressed with your presence. Amy Robach to me felt like, man, she bought into who you were, what you were about. That last little thing they do when they ask the question about going into the weekend, give us some hope. Yeah, talk about that a little bit and getting an opportunity like on a Good Morning America. And I just felt like you represented the gospel, Jesus, who you are as a man so well. 
it was a wonderful opportunity and I was very anxious about it actually. And the night before I actually had a nightmare. I told my wife, I said, I woke up from a dream. I said, this is what happened. The interviewer talked the whole time and then said, you know what? I'm sorry. We don't have any more time. Thanks for coming, Rich. And then kind of went to commercial and I kind of like, oh my God, woke up in a cold sweat, you know, just like what happened there? And so we had a pre-meeting, the producer and I met the week before, and they asked me that question. They said, you're going to give you a minute to say whatever you want to the nation around or whoever's watching to, uh, you know, words of encouragement. And I was racking my, what do I want to say? And I thought about, really, I thought about just friends of mine, family members who are not followers of Jesus, people who are deconstructed, people who are given up on faith. And I came up with those four. I had done something along those lines in a sermon before but I really narrowed down that for a few hours before that interview. And I just thought, yeah, I think this is what I want to say in a way that could be easily accessible. And I think theologically rich and that could really, it's that something that can reach people no matter where they are on their journey, which as a pastor of a church that has 75 nations represented, that is multi-generational, 50% of Queens is foreign born. All of my sermons have to be very accessible for the wide variety of people we have in our church. And so I thought about, yeah, I do this every Sunday. I want to do the same thing in this context where there's going to be a whole lot of different people listening. And yeah, I'm just glad that those words were encouraging and um, helpful uh, to people who are watching. Give us those four words again. I don't want to say it. You say it from your voice, the four words you gave them that day. Yeah, the four words were, I love you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. You can come home. And, you know, the come home piece is really, it's my language of repentance. Mm. You know, it's uh, the prodigal. Yeah, it is, it is the return of the prodigal son. It's you can come home to God. There's nothing to be afraid of. God's with you. God loves you. You don't have to be afraid. You can come home. And um, I'm, I'm glad those words, which for me is the, the essence of the Bible, the essence mm, of the scriptures, amen. the essence of the gospel uh, found in those four words. Amen. So give people a reason to go out and buy both the deeply formed life and good, beautiful, and kind. Separate them out so they're not the same, but why should people dig into both those books? Yeah, the deeply formed life is, the way I've thought about it is, it is my reframing of spiritual formation for our generation. And so I am holding aspects of spirituality together that are often compartmentalized. And so I hold together contemplative rhythms, racial justice, emotional health, sexual wholeness and missional presence. And basically I'm, I'm, I'm contending that all these things belong together, no matter who you are, no matter where you live. And so if you're looking to grow in prayer, if you're looking to grow in emotional health, race, sexuality, and understanding that injustice, that's really what the deeply formed life is about. And what I do is I offer theology and then very accessible practices for people to start living these things, not just thinking about them. We're good and beautiful and kind. I'm asking a really fundamental question. And that title actually comes from a poem written by Langston Hughes, in which he said, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. And what Hughes is doing is he's naming the longing of our soul for wholeness and recognizing that unless we look beneath the surface of our lives, we're not going to find the wholeness that we long for in our personal lives, in our relationships, and as a society. And so good and beautiful and kind is basically asking a question. What is standing in the way of our wholeness? How do we begin to 
internalize new realities? And then what does it mean to actually live this out in the world? And in a world that's marked by increasingly by fractures and by fragmentation internally and interpersonally and institutionally, I think it is an important word for our day. So to close, I want to ask you one more question. What are you paying attention to? Where are your eyes fixed right now in such a way that maybe you're ahead of the curve? You need to lead us at a place to really pay attention and heed in a good way, in a challenging way, where we are in culture as a church, as a people, as individual followers of Christ. What are you on to that maybe we need to be keeping our eye on? You know, I think I've, it's it's something that I've been on for a while and part of it because of the culture at New Life that Pete really created. But I tell people often that in order to withstand the level of reactivity mm. that we find in our society, the level of emotionality, the inability to be present to each other, I think the language of family systems has been really helpful for me, family systems theory. And how do we think about things like differentiation and being a calm presence in the world? And, you know, to, to talk about race, to talk about sexuality, to talk about politics, these are massive issues that cause all kinds of fractures. And I think that before we talk about any of these things, we need a spirituality and an emotional life that has the capacity mm. uh, to actually have these conversations. And so as we think about our own lives, our families, our churches, becoming a calm and curious presence, I think is one of the most important things, which takes a lot of time and is very difficult, but I think truly it's worthwhile. Love that phrase, calm and curious presence. Well, Rich, you've been a joy to have on. We worked very hard, Susan and I did. Give her a raise. I'll email her and include both of you <laughs> in it. That you, you approved 20%, was that right? I, I, we'll work with it. We'll work with it. <laughs> or you'll give her a couple in and out burgers next time you go out of yeah. town and bring them back to her. So, Rich, you've been a joy to have on. I feel like I'm better. I want to follow harder after Jesus based on what you just shared here, if I knew nothing else about you. And if people want to know more, they can obviously go to Amazon and find those two books. Where else should people look to find more out about you and the church and what's going on? Yeah, I'm on, on social media. is usually where I'm trying to craft words for articles, books, sermons. So on Twitter and Instagram at, at Rich Velotis. They can also go to uh, richvelotis.com to learn about future writing projects. And if they want to learn more about our community, our church, it's newlife.nyc. Well, friends, I hope you got as much out of this as I did, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Have a great day, Rich. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.